Funding for the Think Podcast comes from Trinity University, where the spirit of inquiry can inspire a resilient and diverse community of lifelong learners to answer questions and question answers. More at trinity.edu slash values. You might have heard the term empath. It's someone who feels other people's emotions deeply, sometimes painfully. It's a select group of people who can raise their hands and say they've got that almost telepathic capability to get into another's head. So what about the rest of us? How can we key into what our friends, our family, even strangers are experiencing so that we can be better friends, better spouses, better colleagues? From KERA in Dallas, this is Think. I'm Chris Boyd. In his new book, David Brooks explores the very basic and necessary skills we need to connect with other people. Brooks is an op-ed columnist for The New York Times and appears regularly on PBS NewsHour and Meet the Press on NBC. He's a best-selling author of numerous books, and his newest is How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. He joined me recently in front of a live audience as part of the Dallas Museum of Arts, Arts and Letters Live series, and we are delighted today to bring you that conversation. Welcome back to Dallas. Thank you. So reading this book, I thought a lot about the fact that, of course, every human wants to be seen, but this is something we cannot do for ourselves. This relies on the generosity of other people. We have to choose to do that for one another. Yeah, there's a novelist who I really admire, Frederick Buechner, uh, who said the thing we want most is to be seen in all our fullness, fullness, and the thing we fear most is to be seen in all our fullness. <laughs> uh, and so I totally get that. I, I start the book by talking about how emotionally avoidant I've been through most of my life. And the book opens with me ask, reminding people of the movie Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and uh, if you remember that movie, you remember how um, warm and huggy most Jewish families are, singing and dancing and all that. And I came from the other kind of Jewish family. Uh, and I, the phrase of our culture was, think Yiddish, act British. And so it was super stiff of her lip. Uh, and I went through most of my life living more or less on that level. Uh, and uh, I remember in high school thinking, you know, I'm, I'm shallow, I'm so happy by that. I look at all the deep people, they seem sad. <laughs> uh, but then life hits you with things, and I ultimately decided to quote Beekner again, that if you hide yourself away from the emotions of life, and sometimes the pain of life, you've hid yourself away from the holy sources of life itself. And so I've been on this journey uh, to become hopefully a more human person and a deeper person and I've become a much more joyous person, but it's had downsides. <laughs> like, I have feelings now, like I... Uh, <laughs> and so I'll be, you know, dancing with my wife and feelings are great. And then she goes on a business trip and I'm like, feelings suck. <laughs> um, and I, one of my best moments in life, I teach a course, um, I have been teaching at Yale for 20 years, and I only teach at schools I couldn't have gotten into. Uh, <laughs> And I had a kid um, who was a great student, and he was a Rhodes Scholar, and they call the course Therapy with Brooks because we just spill our guts to each other. Um, and at the end of the course, he said, Professor Brooks, I've really enjoyed the course. It's made me much sadder. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that was a total win for me. Because uh, like, he was leading this perfect high-flying achievement life, but I asked him to look inside, and he didn't, we don't always like what we find there. 
What's so interesting is that you have made a career talking very openly about your ideas about things. That's not the same thing, though, as talking about your emotions. Yeah, so, yeah, when, when I was 17, the admissions officers at Columbia, Wesleyan, and Brown decided I should go to the University of Chicago. Uh, <laughs> and so that is a super cerebral place. Uh, and uh, so uh, my favorite saying about Chicago, it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> so it, super intellectual. Um, and I fit right in. I, I was a double major in history and celibacy while I was at Chicago. Um, and, so, but, and so this was a precursor to a lot of my life, which was uh, my roommate and I entered him, him into the Golden Glo Gloves boxing competition. And we gave him a name, a nickname, the Kosher Killer. Uh, and we trained by boxing, by not by actually boxing, but by reading a lot of books about boxing. <laughs> Uh, and his career lasted 29 seconds. Um, <laughs> but so that was a weird precursor because in the middle of my life, I thought I, I was too shallow uh, and I just wanted to understand depth and emotion. So in classic form, I wrote a book about emotion <laughs> called <laughs> The Social Animal. Like, I'm not gonna feel things, I'll just write a book about it. Uh, and then spiritual formation, I wrote a book called The Road to Character and I learned writing that book that writing a book on character doesn't actually give you good character, and even reading a book on character doesn't give you good character, but buying a book on character does give you good character. <laughs> so um, anyway, so it was this process of writing about it, but I think for writers, in the, we're all just working out our stuff in public. And I think the, the process of working on those books did actually make me a little more open, and it put a moral responsibility on me to relate to people, hopefully in a deeper way. And so uh, I was just, we were talking about the, the process of book tour, and last night a woman came up to me and just said my husband just or recently committed suicide, and you have to know how to be present for somebody at that moment. And so I hope I'm available at that moment, and that, quality of emotional availability takes, I think, a comfort in your own body, uh, and uh, uh, it, it also takes just having suffered things. Uh, there's a saying from, I forget who, Montaigne, I think, you can be knowledgeable with other men's knowledge, but you, can, you, can only, you can't be wise with other people's wisdom, and you have, to, you have to have lived through it yourself. And there's a little passage in the book, a great movie that I hope everybody has seen, Goodwill Hunting, uh, and in the movie, there's a character, the Robin Williams therapist character, says to the Matt Damon math whiz character, there's nothing I can't learn from you that I can't read in some book. And, that, and then he says, unless you want to tell me who you are, then I'd be fascinated. But you don't want to do that to your sport because you're terrified of what you might say. And that Williams speech is a, a quality of great listening because he's heard the thing the Matt Damon character desperately does not want him to know, which that he's terrified by life. And he lays it on the table and says, it's gonna be okay anyway. And then he's, he's pointing him in a direction. He's saying there are two kind of knowledge. There's the kind of knowledge you get from books, but there's the other kind of personal knowledge you only get from vulnerability and harsh experience. And so I hope I've learned from, from harsh experience uh, to uh, at least once the woman says that to me, there's nothing I can say, obviously. 
but at least I can give her a hug and just like be present with her for a few minutes. And but these are the, like the book is really about social skills and how you handle the complex circumstances of life and try to be a considerate human being in those circumstances. And uh, that's something I'm not natural at. And therefore, I'm, I've had to teach myself. Well, I mean, so many of us frame the ability to relate to other people and see them clearly as something inherent, something we are born with and we have or we don't. You've come to look at this more like a skill. Yeah, it's like sports. We're, we're born with certain natural talents, but nobody becomes a professional football player or baseball player just by walking out on the field. It takes skills. And so these are basic skills of being a human being, that how, to, how to ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness, how to break up with someone without crushing their heart. Uh, even little things like how do you end a conversation well? I mean, the nice way to end a conversation is to say, I really appreciate our time together. I was particularly interested in what you said about X, and it's been a pleasure to be with you. And if I mention that thing you said that I found very fascinating, we leave with a cherry on top of the conversation. And these are just micro skills, but I've, I've been so moved by Iris Murdoch, the novelist and philosopher, who said we tend to look, we, we normally look at the world through self-serving eyes. And if we can develop the skill of casting a just and loving attention on others, then we've really added something uh, generous to the world. And so the one little story I, I tell in the book is about one of my students, uh, one of my students named Jillian Sawyer. And when her dad was, uh, when she was in college, her dad died of pancreatic cancer. And when, um, when they, as he was dying, she, they talked about the fact that he would miss a lot of the big events of her life, like her wedding. And uh, after graduation, she was invited to be a bridesmaid at one of her friend's weddings. And she's sitting there during the father-daughter toast. The father's giving a beautiful toast and she was so moved by it. But then it came time for the father-daughter dance. Uh, and she thought, I just can't, this is a little too much for me. So she goes to the restroom to have a cry. And when she comes out, she finds that all the people at her table and the adjoining table are just standing there outside the restroom. And she says, Nobody said a word. They didn't try to linger and validate my grief. They just gave me a quick hug and went back to the table and I've never been so moved by silence. And she said it was exactly what I needed. Hmm. So it means that somebody at that table said Jillian needs us in the hallway right now. And so to have that presence of mind, that skill of know what to do is just a, a generous and beautiful gift to the world. And to me that's a just a beautiful way of being if you can do that. You mentioned Iris Murdoch a minute ago. She was the one who thought morality is not the big existential questions that we dwell on. It's often about how we pay attention to people. Yeah, and she's, she said, you know, all these male philosophers built these impregnable abstract moral systems, like Immanuel Kant, like just big role. You, you follow the rules and these are impregnable philosophical systems. But in my view, they were often blind to the systems of care that were surrounding them. And it's not an accident that among the philosophers and writers who've paid most attention to the quality of attention, and that attention is such a moral act, uh, they tended to be women. The, the, the great philosopher of attention is a French writer named Simone Weil, who said attention is prayer. And I, I once saw an interview with um, Mother Teresa with Dan Rather, and he said, 
when you pray, what do you say to God? And she said, I don't say anything to God, I just listen. And he says, well, what's God saying to you? And she says, well, God is just listening. <laughs> and if, and if, you can't, if you can't understand it, I can't explain it to you. Uh, and so since um, we're in Texas, I'll tell a story about the power of attention. So I'm in Waco, um, which has got to be close to here, right? It's Texas. Um, <laughs> uh, it's all the same state. I mean, how big can it be? Um, so I, I, I'm having dinner at a, um, a diner, and I'm talking to a 93-year-old lady named LaRue Dorsey. And Mrs. Dorsey was a teacher, and she's presenting herself to me as a strict disciplinarian, stern, intimidated. And I'm like, whoa, this woman is formidable. And into the diner comes a mutual friend of ours, a guy named Jimmy Durrell, who, who pastors uh, the homeless in Waco. Uh, and he walks up to the table, and he grabs Mrs. Dorsey by the shoulders and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. <laughs> and he says to her, Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best, you're the best, I love you, I love you. And that stern drill sergeant turns instantly into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl. And it's the quality of attention that brought forth a different version of him, of her. And the profound point I try to make in there is that, of course, he's a much bigger, warm personality more than me, but he's also a pastor. So when he's looking at her, he's looking at somebody made in the image of God. He's looking into the face of God. He's looking into somebody with a soul of infinite value and dignity. And you can be Christian, Jewish, Muslim, atheist, agnostic, but looking at somebody with that kind of respectful and reverential attention is a precondition for knowing somebody well. And that each person you meet is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery you'll never get to the bottom of. And that, that kind of attention opens them up and it opens you up to the grandeur of each human being you meet. In our political discourse now, we're discouraged from paying close attention to anyone who falls on the other side, regardless of what our side might be. What do we do about that, about, about people telling us it's dangerous, it might be hazardous to our own character to try and understand somebody who sees the world differently? Yeah, so, well, first I should say that I, uh, in 2015, I wrote 80 columns saying, don't worry, Donald Trump will never get the Republican nomination. <laughs> and so at the time, I was living in Washington, I was, my social life was more or less in New York, and I was teaching at Yale. So how could I be out of touch with America? <laughs> uh, <laughs> And so I, I've tried to, and Washington is the most emotionally avoidant spot on the face of the earth. As somebody said, Washington is not filled with the people who put the cat in the dryer, the naughty kids who put the cat in the dryer, they're filled with the kids who tattled on the kids who put the cat in the dryer. <laughs> and I was once on the phone with a guy who was working in the White House, and he starts talking to me, and our phone dro our call drops, I'm on a cell phone, and I think he'll, he'll notice that the call is dropped, and he'll call me back and three minutes go by, five minutes go by, seven minutes go by. I finally call his office, and um, I, I, I talk to his assistant, and she says, he can't talk, he's on the phone. And I, I say, <laughs> he's on the phone with me. He, he does not realize the call has dropped. Uh, and so that's a con just a kind of unseeing. Uh, but I found that if you, when dealing with somebody on the other side, if you can get them into narrative mode, then you're cutting beneath a lot of the posturing of politics. 
And so I no longer ask people, what do you think? I ask people, how did you come to believe this? And so they're telling me a story about um, some important person in their life or, or some experience they had. And suddenly we're into the, some human story that's relatable and it's not just the cultural or political battles. And so I can't remember if I put this in the book, but I was with a guy in South Dakota years ago and he was a, about 70, he was a big Trump supporter. And we we're just talking and he says, you know, let me tell you about the best day of my life. He was working at a plant that built the containers for refrigeration units. And he's, uh, he said, I was 35 and I was the foreman for a little section of the plant and they upgrade the technology, I'm no longer qualified, they lay me off. And I was just gonna leave quietly, so I put my stuff in a box and I opened the door for my office and 3,600 people had formed a double line from his office door to his car door in the parking lot. So he walks down this double line while everyone's applauding him and he goes to the car door and he's done and he says, every job I've ever had since was worse was more low pay, and my life has been downhill ever since that day. And so he says, Trump may be a jackass, but I need him, I need a change. And so when he tells you that story, I may not agree with the, the choices he's made, but I, I get where he's coming from. And so I found getting people into narrative mode is just a, a surefire way to at least bridge some of the divides that we're gonna have. It's become really fashionable for for people with a certain amount of education to be very down on small talk because small talk is not important and, and important people talk about important things. You think small talk is underrated? Yeah, I, had some, I run this nonprofit called Weave and we had some interns. Um, actually, let me get to their story in a second. The, the interns taught me something because they came to me and they're all college kids for summer break and they come to me in the middle of their summer with us and they say, David, we, we don't think you know us well enough. We'd like to spend a day look, showing you our childhood photos. And my mentor when I was in college was a guy named William F. Buckley. <laughs> 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 and so I'm trying to imagine me going to Bill Buckley and saying, you know, Bill, you haven't seen me in diapers. Um, <laughs> and so his head would have exploded um, but uh, I did it. We spent a day looking at their childhood photos <laughs> and it was the right thing to do. And I hadn't made this connection till this second, but it, maybe it led me to write this book because <laughs> they wanted to be seen. Yeah. And I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that, but uh, they came up with another pro campaign. They wanted us to run a media campaign, F small talk, because they didn't like small talk. Uh, and I'm like a middle-aged guy and I'm like, actually I kind of like small talk. <laughs> And I think it's useful because as we're getting to know each other, it's gonna be a gradual process. I have to respect your privacy. I have to see your reserve as a sign of self-respect. You're not just gonna spill your guts with me. And so the process of getting to know someone is a series of stages. And one of those stages is what I call in the book accompaniment, which is just another centered way of being with a person. And in small talk, we're getting used to each other and nothing can be heard in the head until there's comfort in the body. And so in small talk, we're just sort of like being around each other. And I have a, a couple in DC who say, we like our friends to be lingerable. We just want them to be the kind of good company who you want to linger with after dinner. And you may not be talking about anything very important, but we're building the trust that is required for everything else that comes after. 
And one of my students told me that I don't think I can talk about the big things with somebody unless I also talk about the little things. And I, I think that's true, so I'm, I'm happy to talk about the Texas Rangers. <laughs> so what's the difference between accompaniment and just being a passive recipient of someone talking at you? Yes, so accompaniment really is um, other-centered. So we think of the pianist accompanied, accompanying a, um, uh, a, a singer. And the, the, the pianist is watching her, seeing how she's handling the song, and trying to embellish the project she's involved in. So it's, it's a bit of an other-centered way of being. Uh, and so part of accompaniment, it can be just play and conversation. And uh, play is actually, I, I think companies should do more play together. I guess maybe they do at retreats and things like that, pickleball, uh, basketball. I, I play basketball with a bunch of guys. You can imagine my game, right? Um, <laughs> uh, and we've never really talked, had serious conversations, but we've done this for 30 years. Uh, and there's sort of like trash talk, high five, passing the ball. Uh, and so we feel like we know each other really well. And I have a friend who has a, another basketball game, he's not in mine, and he says, okay, after the game, let's sit down, and for the next two minutes, we're gonna ask each other about our, each other's kids, because when we go home to our wives, they're gonna ask, well, how's Johnny doing? <laughs> <laughs> And so they just set aside two minutes just so they can brief their wives uh, <laughs> correctly. But they don't, in some sense, it's nice they should probably talk more about their personal lives, but it's a nice way of really being natural because when you play, you are yourself. And I, I tell a story in the book when my oldest son was like 12, 14 months, we lived in Brussels, and uh, he used to wake up, God bless him, at 4 a.m. And I'd play with him till 10. I call it play, you would call it dad trying to take a nap while he sleeps, while he jumps around. But I had this thought that I know him better than anybody I've ever met because in play we've been so transparent with each other and he knows me better than anybody's known me. And we'd never spoken a word because he couldn't talk yet. And so, but it was that profound moment of thinking, wow, play, we really can bond over things without words and you and I do words for a living. But there are several moments in my life in joyous moments and in desperately sad moments where the futility words has really come through to me. And accompaniment is just that other-centered way of just hanging out together. What did it take for you to learn to just abide with another person in their sorrow and their grief and their pain? You know, first I should say abiding is not my skill. So I have a clock in my head all the time uh, so, um, uh, so if I pull in the gas station to pump gas into my tank, I think, oh, I've got 90 seconds here, I can get two emails done. And that's just the terrible way of being, but that's my way of being, and I, I'm ashamed of it. But uh, uh, I'm not totally ashamed, but I'm not proud of it. Uh, <laughs> but the, to be with someone in sorrow, and I, I have a cha whole chapter on this phenomenon, but it was, it's an example of learning a social skill and why I think morality is a social skill, what you asked earlier. Um, so my oldest friend in the world was a guy named Peter Marks, uh, and glorious life, uh, just handsome, athletic, um, great kids, wonderful wife, successful eye surgeon. And at age 57, he gets hit with depression, uh, just very severe depression. And I'm a reasonably learned person, but I realized then 
I had no idea what depression was. And I realized you can't understand it. If you've been lucky enough never to have it, you can't understand by extrapolating from your own moments of sadness. It's nothing like that. The best little description of it I read uh, was, uh, depression is a malfunction in the instrument we use to perceive reality. And so uh, Pete had, like a lot of people, had these obsessive compulsive voices in his head um, that uh, I'm bad, no one would notice if I was gone, I'm worthless. And so those voices were lying to him. And I didn't appreciate that nature of depression. So I, in the beginning of our, his depression, I made a series of social errors. And one of them was trying to give him ideas about how to get out of depression. And I would say, you know, you did these service trips to Vietnam, you should do that, you found it so rewarding. And I later learned that if you're giving ad advice on how to get a depression, out of depression to a depressed person, all you're doing is showing you don't get it. Because it's not ideas they're lacking, it's energy and motivation and all sorts of other things. And the other mistake I made was uh, positive reframing, trying to remind him, so, him of all the good things in his life. And when you do that, all you're doing is reminding the person they're not enjoying the things that are palpably enjoyable. So you're making them feel worse. Uh, and gradually I learned that the only thing I could do for a person in depression, and talk about the futility of words, is say, this sucks, and acknowledge the reality. And then you can say, I want more for you. And it doesn't mean more is going to happen, but it shows I want more for you. I, I intend more for you. And then uh, Victor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning, his great book, he, when he was confronting somebody contemplating suicide, he would say, life has not stopped expecting of things of you. Which sounds kind of harsh, but it, he would know. Uh, and I think his point was that somebody with um, depression uh, has developed a credibility from their suffering that can be powerfully when spoken into the life of another person. And there's this great quote from Thornton Wilder I definitely put in the book, um, that without your low voice trembling in the hearts of men, where would your power be? And he says, in love service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. And so these are gradual learning how to, how to be social with a friend who's in, in suffering. And nothing I said or nothing anybody said could have or did make a difference. He ended up succumbing to suicide. But, um, but I, I wish, I don't think, I don't feel guilty because I didn't, I, but I, I do feel I, I learned hard things just to show up a little better for him so that um, he would have had a little more company along the way. And so when I say that morality is a social skill, that's what I mean. It's like, in different circumstances, showing up for what that person needs at that moment. We all have different motivations for going to therapy, but your sense is that therapy works if your therapist is a good story editor. Yeah, so people go to therapy, we all have a story that we tell about ourselves. And some people, it, we, we often build the story out of the, the, the plots in our culture. So some people tell a rags to riches story. I started up poor, I made it. Some people tell an overcoming the monster story. Uh, I, w I had an abusive parent or something like that. I suffered from alcoholism, but I overcame it, overcoming the monster. And a lot of people tell redemption stories that my life was okay, something terrible happened, but I came back better. And there's a guy, Dan McAdams, who writes about how people narrate their lives. 
And he wrote a book called The Redemptive Self saying human beings tell redemptive stories about themselves. And then he went around the world talking about his book and everywhere else in the world people said, you're crazy, that's what Americans tell their small selves. That's not <laughs> what we tell ourselves. So he realized that it was too about America, not about the world. But, but so people tell a story about their life and they live into the story they tell. Like Elon Musk, he told, he apparently read these super comic books and video games and his story of his life is I'm gonna save the world. And if you look at all how he talks about all his companies, electric cars, SpaceX, we need another planet to go to when we destroy this one, it's all I'm gonna save the world. He lives into that story. And I guess it's working for him. Um, but some people their story stops working often because they get the causation wrong. And so they blame themselves for things that they didn't do and then they blame others for things they did do. And so I learned this from Lori Gottlieb as a therapist in LA who wrote a really good book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, I think something like that. Um, and she says, what I do is I listen to the story, we retell the story and I try to remind them of the things they left out of their clean tale. Uh, and so she says, I'm just a story editor. I'm getting people to tell a more accurate story about their life, and I want them to tell a story in which they have agency and they're the hero. Uh, and so she says, I'm a story editor. Uh, and one of, the, um, one of the great stories that she, she, ha she has in her book, and I have a little description of it in mine, is about a guy named John who's an obnoxious screenwriter, uh, and he is talking about, he's like a, just an extreme narcissistic jerk. Uh, and she says, have compassion, have compassion. Don't bury this guy under a diagnosis. Just see the person. And he's talking about his kids and he's griping about how everyone's, he's surrounded by idiots. And then he says, in the middle of random conversation, uh, and then Gabe was so emotional. And she says, who's Gabe? We've been in therapy for months and months. You haven't mentioned Gabe. And he puts down his phone and leaves. And he comes back weeks later and he says, Gabe was my son. And he had been driving with his family. His phone rings. He looks at the phone and they get hit head on by an SUV. And so Gabe is, dies in the crash. And so he's left Gabe out of his story. Uh, for understandable reasons. So she has to work with him to include Gabe in his story so he can have an accurate life story and he can become a little more emotionally unblocked. We can't fully know another person unless we know the ways they've been hurt. Yeah, and I think we can never fully know another person, let alone ourselves. Um, but, you know, it, I, you know, I think those moments of um, grief uh, you know, they're sort of the making of us most of the time. But what, what those moments of grief, the death of um, a spouse, a kid, uh, somebody you care about, it just upsets your whole, the models you have of the world. And, um, oh boy, there's a senior moment. Was it Joan Didion who wrote the book of, uh, no. Um, she was Year of Magical Thinking. Yeah, the year, that, yeah, the year of Magical Thinking. So that's a book that captures the disorientation of losing someone. I, I have a buddy who just lost his wife and he, he says, I always wanna like, I can't wait to go home and tell her about this. And so your mind is going there because your models, in your models, in your head, that person is still there. Uh, and in, in this book, I quote a, another book um, 
and a woman who'd lost her husband, she's walking down the street and somebody, a neighbor who knows her plight, who'd also lost her husband, screams out at her, you'll think you're sane, you think you're sane, but you're not. And she says, before long, I was in the CVS and they were playing, he'll be home, or I'll be home by Christmas. And she starts screaming at the CVS employees because her husband is not gonna be home by Christmas. And so she is sort of insane. And so the people who recover from these moments of grief, uh, well, the people who don't recover just try to keep their old models and assimilate what happened into their old models. And the people who grow from it realize I've got to change all my models. That I'm now a widow, a widower. I'm now someone who survived cancer. I'm not that person anymore. And so I have to readjust all my models. And grief is a process of your brain healing itself and readjusting the models. And it's something we don't really control. We're just along for the ride. And I think C.S. Lewis has a line that grief is like being in a river that's winding that seems to be always moving but always repeating. And so it's that process of reorienting your models. And to see someone well, you s at some level have to see how they see the world. Not all the way, you're never gonna get that, but to some degree, how does this person see the world? And so uh, you have to see how their, their models have been updated. I just wanna thank you so much for, for coming tonight and, and talking with us, and it's been really lovely. Well, I've, thank you so much, thank you.